what's another interesting part of this is that private private federal partnership where you had advanced reactors and cooperative agreement between DOE and that private company. So where do the tribes fit in is, has always been a question that is not entirely been answered by, by DOE nor by the company. Did you know that there are half a million metric tons of nuclear waste temporarily stored at hundreds of sites worldwide? In the U.S. alone, one in three people live within 50 miles of a storage site. No country has yet successfully disposed of commercial spent nuclear fuel, but it's not for lack of a solution. So what's the delay? The answers are complex and controversial. In this series, we explore the nuclear waste issue with people representing various pieces of this complicated puzzle. We hope this podcast will give you a clearer picture of nuclear waste, the whole story. We believe that listening is an important element of a successful nuclear waste disposal program. A core company value is to seek and listen to different perspectives. Opinions expressed by the interviewers and their subjects are not necessarily representative of the company. If there's a topic discussed in the podcast that is unfamiliar to you, or you'd like to more closely review what was said, please see the show notes at deepisolation.com slash podcasts. Hello, I'm Carrie Hulak, Deep Isolation Communications Manager. Today, I'm talking with Talia Martin, Director of the Tribal Department of Energy for the Shoshone-Bannock Tribes, located on the Fort Hall Reservation in Fort Hall, Idaho, near the Idaho National Laboratory. The Tribal Department of Energy's mission is to monitor DOE activities to ensure they are protective of the tribe's natural, cultural, and human health. The Tribal Department of Energy promotes the responsible management of tribal energy resources in a manner that is self-sustainable, economically feasible, as well as biologically and culturally sensitive for the Shoshone-Bannock tribes. Welcome, Talia. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's good to be here. And when I say here, I mean virtually since I'm still in Fort Hall. <laughs> That's right. Are you, are you up in uh, Fort Hall right now? Yes, I'm actually at our tribal DOE offices amongst the tribal business uh, buildings. Great, great. All right, well, let's just get started here. Um, just first of all, uh, tell me about yourself and how you became interested in nuclear issues through the work that you do with the tribe. Sure. Well, currently I'm the tribal DOE director for the Shoshone tribes, and we operate as more of a liaison between the tribes and Department of Energy, which um, is the Office of Idaho Operations is, is who we, we mainly work with. Um, but before that, um, so I've been here for six years, but before that I was an environmental scientist. So I've worked with tribes for about 10 to 11 years, and I worked for the Environmental Waste Management Program for the tribes, which dealt with different types of environmental issues, um, completely different than what I do here now, working with the DOE and nuclear energy issues. Before we get more into the uh, nuclear issues, I would love to hear some of the history of the reservation and the culture of the tribes to help our listeners better understand the community at large, and feel free to describe challenges that the tribes have faced. Sure. So 
you mentioned that we're from Fort Hall, Idaho. So this is the Fort Hall Indian Reservation. We're in southeastern Idaho. It's somewhat of a, a desert compared to the northern Idaho people like to, to speak about. Um, nonetheless, we have about uh, 6,000 tribal members here. Um, pretty thriving economy in this area with gaming, agriculture, um, and we were established initially by the Fort Bridger Treaty of 1868, and we adopted a, the tribe's adoptable uh, constitution in about 1934. So our governmental structure, you know, like nature, is, is, is different, something that if you're working with, with different tribes, um, that's probably one of the key things you should understand is the governmental structure for us, we're, the governing body, body is the Fort Hall Business Council. Uh, it's comprised of seven members, and, uh, well, six members and one chairman. We have elections about every two years, the terms about every two years. Um, so that's the leadership, AKA my, my bosses. <laughs> but you know, they're elected representatives of the people and as a tribal member as well, I, I get to, to be involved in that, those elections, so. Um, <clears throat> So we, we own about 98%, the tribes own about 98% of the, the tribal land. We also have contaminant uh, environmental issues that we deal with. So as far as the challenges uh, with environmental issues that the Fort Hall Reservation deals with, one of them being the Eastern Mashad Flats Superfund site. Uh, and that has to deal with phosphorus processing from some of the uh, private industry. Uh, additionally, we have the game mine where they mine phosphate ore since, oh gosh, I think the 40s and maybe even before that. And the game mine site is actually within the, the boundaries of the reservation. And uh, that's actually on the national priorities list. But that's about the south to us. Um, but when you go to the north of us and our ancestral lands, you have the Idaho National Laboratory and Department of Energy Reservation. And, that's about 50 miles, a little less than 50 miles north of our, our boundary. So, yes, yeah, so I definitely wanted to ask about um, the relationship with the lab. Um, so this is a great segue here. You know, what is your relationship with the lab and how do you feel your, um, has it been responsive to tribal input and concerns? What are some of the issues uh, that you deal with being in that location? Right. You know, I think it's best to understand some of the of the history between the tribes and, and DOE, the labs. So when I say the tribes and speaking of traditional Bennett tribes, um, the Idaho National Laboratory sits on ancestral lands. And so uh, I mentioned earlier that the tribes is actually composed of two tribes, Shoshone and Bannock. And we have, we're descendants of, of, uh, of both tribes put on one reservation. Um, but the ancestral lands, there's evidence that our, our <clears throat> ancestors had, had used that as transportation quarter, has also used it um, in, in other ways, you know, where it's ceremonial, um, they inhabited that areas at, at different times of seasons. So it has some ancestral value, um, significant ancestral value to, to the tribes, to each tribe. Uh, of course, now we're one tribe, Shoshone Bag tribe, so um, not a lot of people know that. But some of the significant, uh, culturally significant sites that are on there are to do with ceremonial. Some are um, to do with the landscape there, like the buttes, the caves. Um, there's a lot of volcanic activity in that area. And so um, 
there's some caves that that were in use by some of our ancestors. Um, there's also hunting and gathering areas that that uh, the tribes had been uh, have been able to use prior to the INO uh, placing their their site there. So there's quite a bit of um, use that the tribes had had used it for prior, and, and so we have inherent rights to the ancestral lands where the INL sits. So um, kind of fast forwarding to, to the future here around 1992, close to the 90s and a little prior before that, the tribes have, have seen shipments coming on the interstate, which the interstate goes right through the, the reservation. And uh, a lot of these shipments had to do with spent uh, nuclear fuel, transuranic, uh, there's also a railroad that goes through our reservation, and those are actually transuranic shipments from um, Department of Defense from um, um, nuclear waste or spent fuel from submarines that use nuclear reactors. So a lot of that was being uh, shipped through our reservation to the INL site without any type of agreement, input, any type of um, um, tribal involvement during that time. Because the tribes you know, were a sovereign nation, um, self-governing, uh, there was a responsibility for the Department of Energy as well as DOD to, to confirm and work with the tribes because they're going directly through the tribal lands, but also through the ancestral lands that they're they committed and obligated to, to be protective of. So about 1992, the tribes had put a Fort Hall police department, they parked a, a, a vehicle there on, on the railroad and blocked transatlantic shipments, which forced DOD and DOE to, to work with the tribes and come to some type of agreement. And out of that came a, a working agreement around 1992. And, and there was a series of agreements from there that, that just you know continued to renew. They provide some funding so that the tribes could work with DOE and DOE and provide personnel to make sure that they're monitoring any DOE activities. Hence, this is where tribal DOE came out of. Of course, um, the main objective was to monitor cultural resources that were on the INL site, environmental resources, um, natural and cultural. So um, <clears throat> we've had a working agreement for over 25 years with, with DOE and um, they've helped to, the tribes to manage and to, to um, to be involved, you know, uh, with with DOE in in anything they might be doing as far as um, cultural resources management, environmental management. Um, but the primary primary focus the tribes really really work with the DOE on is is making sure they're protective of the Snake River Plain Aquifer, which is you know the sole source aquifer in this region. Um, one downside to that is the tribes don't have any regulatory oversight like the state does. Um, Idaho Department of Environmental Quality, they, they regulate RECRA and, and other environmental regulations. And we're able to work with IDEQ and DOE and make sure that uh, the information that they're collecting and providing is, is, uh, is true and, and uh, kind of give us assurances and confirmation that we're receiving information, the right information. So you touched uh, on um, transportation being a, a large issue. Obviously, that sounds like a struggle that you overcame. Um, are there other nuclear waste issues that you're working on? Or, or would you say transportation is the main 
um, piece that you have to to monitor and uh, work with? Well, the tribes, um, yeah, I would say that transportation is one of the major issues, you know, shipments going to WIP, uh, spending fluid or fuel shipments coming to INL for research, but also we do a lot of environmental monitoring specifically in this office. And we have technicians that work with USGS <clears throat> to provide groundwater monitoring um, or staff to, to, to work with USGS to provide groundwater monitoring. Uh, we also have technicians that will work with cultural resources when they're on the site. They do a lot of cultural resources surveys. So if there's land that will be disturbed by any type of construction or cleanup activities, we have cultural resources staff <clears throat> From the tribes that will work with Battelle Energy Alliance with the contractors for the INL um, that actually operate the, the INL site. They'll work with them in doing surveying and, and making sure there's, uh, there's an artifacts or anything that is relevant to the tribes that they're, they're protective and they follow the, the cultural resources management procedure that is in alignment with the, the tribes have, have also put input into. So would you say overall that you've seen progress? Do you feel optimistic for that relationship? You know, uh, gosh, being, I, I always say I'm relatively new for six years, but we do see some, some cycling of the same patterns and, and where the tribes are always enforcing and trying to maintain consultation between DOE and the tribes and, and you know, with DOE's some of the turnover you have, we're re-educating some of the staff to, to ensure that they are updating and getting input from our Fort Hill Business Council and you know, our governing, governing body. But uh, we really rely on the trust responsibility of the Department of Energy and make sure that their, their consultation is meaningful and timely. And, and sometimes we're not always seeing it except when it has to do with a regulatory driver such as NEPA, which are National Environmental Protection Act. Um, when there's public commenting going on, there's usually, a, they're very good at um, maintaining that, that checklist, you know, making sure that they're following the schedule and getting input. Uh, as far as concerns being addressed, um, I think it really depends on case by case, especially if there's a regulatory driver then the state is is very much involved and and they'll take our concerns um you know it's kind of it's it's an interesting place we find ourselves in when you know they take our concerns and, and information it's well documented and um it, it's not always the type of consultation consultation that we expect uh, we again, you want it to be meaningful, two-way dialogue, then addressing concerns, and and sometimes you get that, sometimes you don't, and um, we've seen some progress, and and sometimes you do take a couple steps backwards, but um, that working agreement has has done pretty good as far as making sure there's communication. Can there be improvement? Absolutely, you know, on on both sides, and no matter um, who we're talking about, whether it's our tribal staff and making sure we're 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 maintaining the presence on the site. Uh, the DOE, making sure that their tribal liaisons are, are informing and updating and notifying our governing body and make sure they're addressing those concerns. So uh, we, we are, we're, always, we're always enforcing consultation. And I really do see some 
improvement and, and need for improvement as well. So the nuclear waste disposal situation is an impasse right now in the U.S., as you well know, uh, Yucca Mountain in Nevada, the situation there. Uh, do you have thoughts about the primary reasons for this? Is there a vision that you'd like to see happen for moving past that and finding a solution? This is an interesting question because um, you can get the typical response about you know, the political issues that the, the geological repository has brought up, the, the legal challenges, the licensing activities. And for at a tri tribal perspective, you know, you, you see um, <clears throat> some social barriers from the communities themselves. And so uh, it's, it's, what's interesting is in 2015, when I first came on, consent-based siting was a major approach they were using and considering at least to, to help drive a, um, an approval for a geological repository. Uh, it, it went away with the next administration and then when we get a full circle and coming back to consent-based siting. And, and it's worked for some areas like, you know, up in Canada, I think there's some areas where it's actually worked even with the indigenous population. Uh, but there's still questions. You know, this is a great approach, but there's still questions from, from the Indian tribes that are actually affected by the, the location of the proposed geological repositories. Another interesting um, part of this is we're still generating nuclear waste. Uh, commercial reactors are still operating. And to this day on Idaho National Laboratory site, we have uh, siting of nuclear reactors for the advanced reactor mission. And we, one of the, the, one of our major concerns is the fact that the nuclear waste or the spent fuel that will be generated is, has no place to go, no home. You know, once after the cooling process, of course, and it goes into to wet storage and has to be stored somewhere else, or I guess you'd call it disposal of the, the waste. So right now we're seeing interim storage, which was something that was predicted decades ago by, by many, many um, uh, proponents and, and of proponents and the opponents of the uh, nuclear waste issue. So we're seeing interim storage at these sites, at the, the reactor sites and from the, the advanced reactors. Uh, we're hearing of, we're actually, um, there's definitely a, a huge push for interim storage at other areas where there are tribes within those, those places. So you're still gonna have to have that engagement with the, these tribes in some way. Um, the, and, and it's kind of, it's, it's, what's another interesting part of this is that private, private federal partnership where you had advanced reactors and cooperative agreement between DOE and that private company so where do the tribes fit in is, has always been a question that is not entirely been answered by, by DOE nor by the company. And we're starting to see some of their oh, licensing applications go through where we don't consider that they've done uh, a thorough job of cultural resources and environmental impacts that can occur. And, and so we've had no real tribal input. So we're still open to this, this discussion and, and we'd like to be, these tri the tri all tribes would like to be engaged upon 
if we see any type of federal actions or activities that could impact tribal uh, interests. And I know this is a huge challenge for many Native American reservations across the U.S. Those lands are often near these types of sites uh, or are often targeted for disposal. Um, we do feel if the consent-based siting process is properly followed that you know, our tribes that you're aware of open to hosting disposal or storage sites. Um, well, in some of our tribal working groups, you know, we, we play around with that same question and challenge, are their tribes open to this? And, you know, we have different representatives on these working groups because there's so many viewpoints that are, are valid, you know, in their, in their area of interest and their locations and the, the DOE sites they work with. So, um, like, generally speaking, tribes have been involved in this discussion and nobody has closed their doors to, to being involved, at least into the discussion of consent-based signing process, because that process is still up in the air on how that is going to involve Indian tribes. And we're still asking that question. Uh, there has been some, some history as far as tribes that were involved in the monitoring retrieval storage, um, the Gushu tribe, but there was some pushback from the state itself. So, you know, if you reverse that and the state is actually the ones that consent to it, you know, what, where do the Indian tribes, where are they allowed to, um, to voice their opinion and have their concerns addressed adequately is, is a question. So uh, are we open to these questions, to the process? We, we have been in the past. Um, so I, I think it's it's really up in the air, you know, kind of open-ended right now. How have you approached your role in a way that's helped you be successful interacting with such a wide group of stakeholders? Uh, one of the biggest strengths, I think, in working with federal agencies or the state and the tribes is is being able to, to be involved in relationship building as well as maintaining. Um, communication is vital. And again, we, we talk about two-way dialogue and enforcing and sometimes uh, the tribes may feel that they're being spoken to rather than listened as well. And so at this level, we really have to work at the staff and technical level. We really have to work on our communication skills to make sure that everybody is heard in the room and, and the tribe's uh, issues and concerns are addressed as well. Um, anything I didn't ask so far that you'd like our listeners to take away from our conversation? You know, I you did kind of uh, allude to it. We talked a little bit about Stigwig, and and I'm not doing any type of shameless plug, but I, you know, this this group is it's been around a long time, and they've had a lot of great accomplishments. Um, they've been instrumental in working with uh, the Office of Legacy Management uh, in helping to, to advocate the, for the formation of the long-term long stewardship working group. And that's because one of their key priorities is long-term stewardship of the cleanup sites. Once the work is done, clean, cleanup has occurred, remediation, uh, these lands will go into long-term monitoring to ensure that they remain protected. Uh, one thing you might hear from tribes is the reservation 
the people, they're not going anywhere. We're connected to the land. And even after GOE leaves and the other federal agencies that might have been there, they leave, we're going to continue to be there. I think touching back, just to kind of follow up on a question I asked earlier, um, I mean, do, do the do, do, do the tribes that you, you work with have a wish for what happens to the waste or you don't take an opinion on that at this point or you know, you're just, you know, kind of managing the tribal interests, like for example, the transportation going through, right. you, have, you have kind of a, a perfect world, like a, a wish you, a, you know, that would be a final resolution. Right. Well, at the Idaho National Laboratory, there's two different offices there, which is any nuclear energy and then environmental management. And the tribes have understand that uh, they're always going to have a research mission there. And that's that's important to them. Sometimes we will have shipments that go through the reservation that to do with you know nuclear materials or spent fuel that they're in research on. Uh, we've have we, we like to stay involved in those conversations, you know, because it continues to go through the reservation on the transportation corridor. Uh, as far as the cleanup mission goes, the state of Idaho, the tribes, we've we've all agree on one thing is that you don't want it to be a per perpetual waste dump here is, is what I say and I ever say that in quotes. Um, it's something you hear often and so ideally we would like the the waste, the byproducts and materials from legacy waste to be shipped out. You know there's a lot of other type of um, uh, waste that have come from other sites like Rocky Flats, Three Mile Island that are being stored here. And so we continuously say we want that that out. And that would of course be the ideal world. And when you say out, do you have a destination in mind? We don't have a destination. You know, we don't wish upon waste to be um, to be involuntarily put on someone else, but we definitely don't want it on our ancestral lands, on our tribal lands. I mean, this, this, is, um, this is part of our preservation of our, our culture and, and our, our practices, our traditions. So we're, we're constantly working hard. Our cultural resources staff work very hard to, to protect those resources, whether it's ancestral lands on the INL site or ancestral lands you know, in, in Montana or Colorado area where we're constantly working to protect and preserve our culture. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Talia. I really appreciate it.